Reactive Redefined is our online coaching program for reactive dogs and their guardians. If you would like to join Reactive Redefined, it will reopen for enrollment on Monday, July 5th. Uh, Reactive Redefined will be open for enrollment for just a couple of days. Enrollment will close on Friday, July 9th. So if you'd like to be on the official wait list to be the first to join Reactive Redefined when it opens, head over to our website, agoodfeelingdogtraining.com slash Reactive Redefined. To disorderly dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. everyone welcome back to another episode of disorderly dogs the podcast i have a special guest with me today we're going to decipher some dog research which is pretty exciting so um even do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for listeners and just tell them a little bit more about yourself sure um i'm dr amy wade and i run a science communication project called dog science says which um, communicates the latest developments in dog science through social media. So I'm most active on Instagram, but also on Facebook and also on Twitter. So this started for me as a blog um, where I did much longer posts and tried to, I was trying to answer questions about my own dog, really, coming from a background of scienti- scientifically trained, like I did a PhD and a um, biological degrees and things but not dog science interestingly enough I don't have any formal training in dog science at all but I got a dog and was super interested in his behavior and wondered whether the things he did was kind of things that Mackie did or things that all dogs do or um whatever and I was um bringing out my little kids at the time well still am actually so I'd stopped working but still had a bit of an itchy, a bit of an itch to get back to, into science. So I started this um, dog science blog, which actually wasn't particularly uh, successful as a blog. I d- just nobody really knew it was there, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd actually st- I started the social media accounts to um, to draw attention to the blog. So I thought I'd just do a few tweets and do a few Instagram posts and tell people about my blog which I did, people were way more interested in what I had to say on social media than they were the blog and the social media just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now there's about, I think it's it's approaching 15,000 followers across the three platforms. So people are interested to know. And it just, on Instagram, it's just kind of mini blogs, I suppose. So I'll put a post about a particular paper, just summarize what they did and what the what the scientists themselves think are the conclusions and applications and things. So just really bite-sized information about the latest dog, dog science, really. Oh my gosh. And I love following you on Instagram because like it is, I think it's so helpful for us to digest just having like those bite-sized highlights, you know, because I think mm. it's like the average person, like going and looking through the research is a little intimidating, right? Like what is all and just, and time consuming, even, <laughs> even for people who would, would like to do that. I know that a lot of, I mean, a lot of my followers are dog prof- professionals like yourself, like traders who don't have the time to trawl through research and just have that 
little bite-sized information accessible, I think is really, well, pe people have said is really useful, which is great. I'm really excited mm -hmm. it's been such a help to people. Yeah, well, and I think, I don't know, do you want to speak just a little bit? Because I feel like, I mean, I guess maybe in the last decade, there has just been like an exponential amount of research being devoted to dogs. Like from your perspective, like, why is that? Why is there more money in dog research? Like, is that helping us get to conclusions for humans or is it because we really just want to know about dogs? I think, I think a bit of both, but um, well, all, all things really, but yeah, it has it really exploded the last decade, as you say, and maybe a bit, bit long, longer ago than that, but not by much. I think probably the main reason is that scientists have realized that dogs actually make a great model species to investigate non-human animals generally. So we can ask questions about how they think and how they behave because um, we've got that close association with them and we can communicate with them really effectively. Uh, when you do an experiment with a dog, you can well, in some ways explain to the dog what they, what they need to do <laughs> or train them to do it. And then you can look at how they respond. So, um, and if dogs can do that, the chances are all other like similar mammals can do a similar thing. So it's teaching, it's te studying dogs teaches us a lot about non-human non thinking and non-human emotions and psychology and things. So I think that's the principal reason that it's really exploded. But people also just want to know about dogs too. <laughs> and why wouldn't we? That there is they're just a they're a principal member of so many families, aren't they? Dogs and a part of our psychology and a part of our lives. So just for themselves, they're worth studying. But I think yeah. probably the fund, funding's not quite so available for, from that for that angle. <laughs> Well, and I think, you know, it's been really fun, like as a professional dog trainer to like see this research coming through that it's like, you know, I live and work with dogs and like, I could have told you that, but I didn't know it. Right. You know what I mean? There wasn't like a peer reviewed st study to confirm it. So like that has been really cool too, right. To kind of see some of these things that like, maybe we have observed and like known, like really just get some more confirmation about like, yeah, no, like that actually is happening across the board right it's not just like our observations and experience yeah it, some some studies you see you think you really did you need to do a study to figure that out <laughs> and some of the things I post some of the comments people go yeah of course we all anyone who owns a dog knows knows that what you want about but uh from a, from the scientific community perspective they, they don't make any assumptions about how animals behave and historically people thought that non-human animals didn't really have emotions and they didn't really have much capacity for thought and although that's changed massively there's still kind of the hangover of that that they assume that there isn't really much there before before it's proved otherwise sort of sort of thing I think which to me doesn't really make all that much sense but that's that's the, that's the science, I guess. Right? Yeah. Okay. So I think that that's a really good bridge. And so guys, today we're going to talk about a couple of pieces of research that I found particularly interesting. And Dr. Amy's going to kind of help us like decipher some of that. So, and you, you know, what Amy. <laughs> so I think that some of these, right? Like, so the first one we're going to talk about is, um, 
synchronizing stress right between dogs and their guardians and i think that like if you've lived with a dog it depends on the dog you've lived with but if you've lived with like you know a herding breed dog you probably already know this but i mean it's just so fascinating to see the difference in breed groups so do you want to kind of just give the listeners just kind of like a broad uh overview of like how the study was set up yeah so the study that we're going to talk about is actually the second study of two which kind of go together. So the original one just included herding breeds. So it was Border Collies and Shetland Sheepdogs. And the researchers wanted to know if stress was synchronized between the guardians, the owners and the dogs. So if the owners got more stressed, do the dogs get more stressed? That's kind of the question. And in that original study, the, the answer was yes, pretty much. And how they went about answering that was taking fur samples from the dogs. I keep looking at my dog, that's why I keep looking down. <laughs> fur samples from the dogs and hair samples from the humans. And in the fur and in the hair is a hormone called cortisol, which I expect a lot of people have heard of, which is a stress hormone. So when you feel more stressed, you excrete more of this hormone, it gets stored in your hair if you're a human and your dog. If you're a fur, if, if you're a fur, <laughs> you're fur if you're a dog. Um, so they took, I think, around 50 dogs and owner pairs and um, just measured the amount of cortisol, which was in the humans and in the dogs. And they did find that owners who were more stressed had more stressed dogs. So it wasn't looking at particular pairs over time. It was just looking at a bunch of different pairs and seeing if more stressed owners had more stressed dogs, which they did. Um, so in this second study, the one we're going to talk about, they wanted to expand that and have a look if breed group, if breed made a difference. So they took um, a group of uh, ancient breed dogs. So things like Basanji and Siberian Husky and things like that. I think there's about eight breeds. Um, and they took another group of dogs, which they called like solitary hunting dogs, which are dogs which are specifically bred to hunt independently and it's a Swedish study and I think that's quite uh, a Swedish thing like in Swedish culture they send their dogs out by themselves to go and find I don't know elk or whatever and the dog does the hunting themselves and then draws attention to that animal or drives them in some direction or whatever so the, the idea was that these dogs are qu quite independent they work by themselves in contrast to the herding group and the ancient group were chosen because they're meant to be more closely related to wolves and perhaps haven't um, undergone kind of selection and breeding to make them as cooperative as, as her herders. So they, they did the same thing. They took owner and uh, dog pairs and they took fur samples and hair samples and had a look at um, stress hormones. And interestingly, in this second study, they just, they just did not find a relationship for the for the um, solitary hunters or the ancient breeds at, at all. <laughs> so their conclusion was, this is something which is unique to herding breeds. So it's not, well, the, the evidence suggests it's something that is unique to herding breeds. It's something that has come about after uh, selective breeding for those particular breed groups. 
So yeah, really interesting. But in the nitty gritty of the paper, they also looked at dog personality and human personality and dog human relationships. And there were things in those other two groups that does affect dog stress levels. So it's not, it's interesting. And there were differences between those two, two groups as well. So I guess we'll, should talk about that a little, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, it's so interesting because like it makes sense from like an evolutionary selective breeding standpoint is that like, of course the herding breeds are more sensitive because we bred them to work more closely with us, right? So I, yes. I guess like from the outside looking in, like that does make sense, right? Like of, yes. of course the dog who is independent isn't going to be as stressed or stressed at all if you are. And yeah. I think that that's something for everyone listening that like, look at the dog that you have, look at their genetics, right? And like, while having a solitary hunter or, you know, an ancient breed probably presents some challenges in some ways, because they're probably not as responsive or as concerned of what you're doing. But, you know, that is a good thing in some ways, right? And the fact that your stress isn't going to impact them at mu- as much, like, that's a nice thing you have from that. And I think that we all just have to look at who our dogs are as individuals, right? And they're genetic. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think that that can help a lot of like some of the emotional baggage that we tie into how the dog responds to us, how they feel about it. Sometimes it's not about you. Sometimes, it's about you, right? <laughs> Sometimes they just don't care. I mean, I have to say my own dog doesn't really care I'm pretty sure I mean there are things I recognize that stress in my own my own stress is not one of them <laughs> but interestingly to, to to go to develop that point um look at your dog as an individual even within the herding dogs not not all of them fit that pattern so there was a quite a lot of variation around, around that trend so there were some dogs who were owned by uh, stressed out owners who didn't who weren't um, unusually stressed and like vice versa so although it's kind of a general pattern for these breeds to for herding breeds to be more synchronized with their own stress it's not a given it's not all herding dogs will get more stressed by your stress and all ancient breeds won't it's not it's like not as simple as that right so so what do you think that we can extrapolate from this research that can help us I don't know, like change our own behavior, maybe feel less guilt about what we're doing for the dogs. Like, like what do we do with this in real life? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know really. I mean, just being, just being aware of your dog's emotions. And I don't don't really know how you would um, externalize stress that your dog would pick up on it. I'm not really, I'm not really sure what cues they would pick up on. Um, like sobbing in the corner they might be a bit, a bit disturbed I don't know I think I don't know just I think for just understanding that dogs are so in tune with us is just so interesting isn't it and just be mindful of of your dog when you're fe- when you're feeling awful and don't kind of stomp around the house and I don't know let out all the steam if your dog's going to get upset by that I don't know. Just just be mindful that they have emotions too, and that they respond to your to your emotions. Yeah, and I think from like a practical stri- a training standpoint, right? Like acknowledging that, like if you are having a stress day and your dog is just more keyed into you because they're a herding group or because they're a combination of breeds, just acknowledging that, like maybe that's not the day to like go do the super hard thing together, right? Like oh, yes, maybe that's, that's the day to like 
do something really easy that you know you both can be successful at, right? And like, there's nothing wrong with that, but we do have to honor that like, what's happening with us can have an impact on our dogs. And knowing that just means like, that's not a day we're gonna push criteria. That's not gonna, a day we're gonna ask extraordinary things from ourselves or our dogs. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And perhaps even give them space and just let them chill and let yourself chill. And don't rely on them for trying to fix your emotional problems. Truly, truly. Oh my gosh. Okay, so was there anything else noteworthy about the stress uh, synchronizing that we haven't touched on yet? Um, well, we just mentioned that an interesting result from it, which uh, to go back to what I was saying before, is that uh, the, the solitary hunters, they did find that those that um, had owners who had particular personality traits as revealed from questionnaires that the owners did, tended to have higher stress levels. So I think it was um, kind of agreeableness or openness. There were certain personality traits within the owner that did have an impact or seemed to have an impact in the study on the dog's stress levels. That was kind of interesting. And also the relationship between human and dog has an impact on the stress levels too. So although there isn't this kind of synchronization where they're feeling stressed at the same time, owner and dog the relationship unsurprisingly impacts impacts the dog and that was found to have more of an effect in the solitary hunting group than the ancient breed group and in fact owner personality didn't impact stress levels in the ancient breed group at all as far as they detected wow how fascinating is that (laughs) Right, because like I guess I don't know I guess just like if I had to to make a a wild guess I would say that like any breed of dog who was really bonded with their owner there probably would be more like of an impact there right but yeah I mean you know it's like there are I I always say to my clients that there there are some things we get for free in our dogs right just we did (laughs) nothing they just came that way and I think that you know some of the things that we can get for free in some of these ancient groups right is that you know they aren't terribly affected by what we're doing and that could be put in a lot of ways right so like you know someone who maybe is on the more anxious anxious side maybe you could be a little bit more successful with some sort of ancient breed who isn't going to be keyed into your anxieties as much. Yeah, exactly. I think that, yeah, I think that's a really good point when choosing a dog, think about your own mental well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for all of you that are out there and you're like, okay, so I want a new dog. I'm still trying to decide what kind of breed I want. Like, I think that this research is really relevant for you, right? To kind of dig deep and be like, okay, what is going to be the best for me and my personality and my tendencies, right? Because, you know, having a stressed out owner with a dog who is also stressed, like that can be a lot. So maybe it would be nice if the dog is not keying into your stress. (laughs) And it's not particularly fair on the dog. I mean, they would be better off in a family who, or with a person who has a, a, a good mental health state. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And everyone, we'll be sure to include links to all this research in the show notes so that you can dive into it on your own if you would like. So um, we want to talk about some other research. So this is one that I was particularly interested in. And like, obviously it makes plenty of sense. Like, I guess maybe I kind of knew it, but it was interesting to see like how the study was set up and the results. And like, I guess what it boiled down to is dogs remembering people who gave them reliable information is that like a a good yeah yeah 
<laughs> yeah, that is, yeah. So, yeah, in this study, which, um, I mean, when you re read this study and you read the kind of the details of the experiment, it was quite long-winded, kind of the, the training stages and the, did this experiment, that experiment, and then we changed it. This and that. But what it comes down to <laughs> is, yeah, they, were see they wanted to test if dogs would follow like the gest like pointing gesture, like people pointing at, um, at the location of food if they would more like to follow a point given by someone who they'd had a reliable interaction with before, if they'd follow that person more than someone who'd given them unreliable information before. So do they, yeah, do they remember the reliability of human information sources? Which, yeah, you'd think, you'd, you would think that they would, I guess, but it's actually quite cognitively demanding to, thing to do to, make a judgment about someone and then remember it and then apply it to a new situation so that animal behaviorists don't really know if that's kind of a, a thing across the animal kingdom or not I think um, so in this study what they did was uh, first they needed to, to set up a situation where the dogs interacted with people and that person was reliable or unreliable so they, they did that by getting two people to sit in front of two um, plates with uh, actually transparent dishes that went on top of them. So there's one person in front of a plate with a transparent dish, another person in front of a plate with a transparent dish. The dog comes into the room, sees the two people, a screen goes up in front of the plate and the dish, and the person who is going to be reliable puts a treat on their plate and the person who's not going to be reliable doesn't put a treat they take the screen away they both point and look at the treats and the dog it can see this and they can see the people pointing and they can they should be able to see the treats really but um some dogs might not notice because they're not particularly good at just at noticing visual cues like that not as good as humans are um so they point to, point at the tree and the dog then makes a decision. And there's been some previous training about how they can get to the treat and all this kind of thing. So they did that with, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 30 dogs. Each dog did it 12 times. And unsurprisingly, the, the majority of times the dog goes for the treat. I think, so, I think it was about nine out of 12 trials they go for the treat when they, when they can see it, or maybe no, or if they notice it and the person is pointing. Uh, so they follow the reliable person when they can see the treat, when the information kind of uh, matches up. So that was finding out which person is reliable and which is unreliable. Then in the second part, the setup's exactly the same with the plates and the dishes and the screen, but this time the dishes are opaque. So when the screen is removed and the people are pointing, the dog then has no visual information about where the treat is. The only information they have is the people pointing. Um, and in that case, they did follow the reliable person, the person who'd always pointed to treats in the past. They chose that reliable person more often than the other person. And the conclusion of the study being that they could remember that that person gave reliable information. So they decided to follow their, their pointing gesture. But uh, there's, a few, there's a few issues with the study in, in my mind. Um, no, I kind of, I kind of will go with the conclusion more, or, more or less. But one, one issue is they didn't go for it that often. 
So they had, they again, it was 12 trials and they had a choice between the unreliable person and the reliable person and averaged across all the dogs. They chose the reliable person seven times and the unreliable person five times. So there wasn't a huge difference. They'd still often go for the wrong one. I think because a lot of dogs had no idea what was going on and just went for whichever one. Whereas some dogs did remember and went for the reliable uh, reliable person's point more often. Or, and another issue, which they do discuss themselves in the paper, is is that remembering reliable or unreliable information or is it just remembering that that person is associated with a treat? That, that person means treat. And then it's just simple associative learning. It's not this more complicated, oh, I trust them, I don't trust them, are they reliable? And the, their argument against that, against it being just associative learning was that um, the dogs didn't have enough time to, to make that uh, connection. Like in other studies where they've kind of tested that specifically and how quickly dogs can make links between stimuli, it takes them a lot more trials than that. So they, they argue that there wasn't time for that. I, don't, I mean, I don't really know enough about dog training to know whether that's true or not. <laughs> or what do, you, what do you think of that? I mean, I have seen dogs pick things up in like three repetitions, retain yeah. information and be reliable going forward. So like, I think it's definitely dog dependent. And I think something else that like, I'm surprised wasn't really taken into account is the fact that like, dog sense of smell is significant. Uh, well, they did, they did control for that. So they, oh, they did. Okay. They, Made made the dish which had the plate which had no treats smell of treats, and I think they might have, they might have even I can't remember if it was this study or not put like false a false area which had treats in it which the dogs couldn't see and had no access to but it created the smell I'm not sure if it was that study but they they did control for that that was definitely in but, their mind. <laughs> but the other the other argument which I think is probably more convincing for it not being associative learning is the dogs didn't didn't get better at it over time. So they, if, if they were learning, if they each did 12 trials, you'd expect towards the end of those 12 trials, they'd be getting it correct more than at the beginning, but that wasn't the case. It was just kind of randomly arranged, correct and incorrect um, choices for the, the treat. And uh, oh yeah, the other argument was, the, which is kind of linked to that one, was the um, dogs who were better at it in the earlier stages weren't necessarily the dogs who are better at it later. So again, kind of not learning is not the ones that are quick, like, like you mentioned, the dogs who pick up things quickly. So yeah, it's these kind of cognitive studies where they're trying to um, test what a dog's thinking. It's, it's so hard to, well, it's hard to test. It's hard to design experiments, but then you have to kind of make some leaps to, make conclusions about what you're seeing you can kind of say yeah that's one explanation but is it the explanation I'm not I'm not sure right well and I think that's something that you know obviously we've known a lot about in dogs for a while now but just like articulating that they understand social cues right like they understand changes in what we're doing what we're pointing they understand like what's relevant information from us because like you know, our, our dogs see us day in and day out. We're constantly doing things, but they have been able to decipher what is relevant when they should be listening, when they shouldn't be listening, right? Like is what's in it for them, so to speak, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk mm-hmm. just a little bit more about that? Kind of like the, the social cue aspect of it? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the reason they chose pointing is because there's, there's, no, there's a whole massive body of research about uh, how well dogs understand human points because they understand them without being trained to understand them and they understand them without having much exposure to people beforehand. And uh, people, they've compared whether dogs understand pointing compared to wolves and they understand it better than wolves. So it's kind of like, are they, since domestication, they've kind of got this innate ability to understand our gestures and our cues, which is just, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So that, I mean, that's the reason they chose pointing because they know that dogs will follow pointing, but not, not always, you know, so it depends on the dog and it, and they won't always follow it. But then that, that's, that was part of the study too, because they, they, they make a choice about whether to follow it. And part of that choice might be how reliable the person is who's pointing, which I guess, which is the point they're making in this study. Right, right. No, and it's just so fascinating, right? And like, obviously it's very, I don't know if it's ever possible to prove like trust or distrust, right? From like a dog perspective, like, can we ever really define exactly. that? But like, I think that it's compelling, right? Like, I love that the, the research is happening, right? Like yeah. they're trying to understand and know better, you know? And I think that, I don't know, for anyone who has a dog who is ball obsessed, something that I see a lot is that like people who try and fake their dogs out with the ball, yeah, you get a lot of the dog being like, yeah, I, I know it's not over there. Like, what are you talking about? So I, I don't know. I guess that there is a level of like, relevance that our dogs just pick up on anyways but yeah I'm, I'm curious to see like more research of this nature right like can we prove that the dog trusts the information we're giving them I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah hard hard to design the experiments for it and all this stuff I mean even if it dog owners kind of go yeah well we knew we knew that anyway it's it's, it's helpful for um things like policy makers who may or may not have a dog but need to back up policy decisions with evidence and things if we and if dogs can do it then you know cows and sheep and pigs and things can do it so it hopefully it brings like this ups the welfare of animals across the board who we interact interact with if we can demonstrate that they have this kind of higher thinking about abilities yes absolutely i love the ripple effects to animal welfare right like across the mm. board right like mm -hmm. it you know, isn't it so crazy to think? Cause like we live in a time where like, of course we know animals have emotions. Like, of course we do. But like, that was not the case for a long time. It was very much- you know, and some and some people still argue against it. But I think there's, oh, they have to just, you just read some things sometimes. So just, just make me so <laughs> angry. I think kind of unsurprisingly the source I think was um, like meat industry representatives kind of saying, no, it's okay. Cause uh, they don't have emotions so we can do what we want to like the pigs the cows the whatever but it, it doesn't matter there's no evidence that they feel emotions there's no evidence that they can think well there is so you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. but that but that evidence is, is needed to argue against people with those attitudes or like industries with those attitudes yes and i love that extra layer of like understanding of like why it's relevant right although we feel like yeah we knew that we didn't need to. yes we do it is important we having mm -hmm. that evidence can help animal welfare across the board yeah and and, do and dogs too of course of course yeah. yeah okay so um 
Let's talk about the, the e-collar versus the positive reinforcement training, because I know that a lot of people were really interested in that. And I'm not sure that the conclusion was as definitive as we'd like it to be, but I feel like they still, I don't know. I felt like they took some liberties in drawing a conclusion, but I don't know. So do you want to just kind of tell everybody how the, the, the study was set up and like what they were trying to figure out? Yeah, so they were um, trying to assess the efficacy of e-collars versus positive reinforcement training. So comparing those two methods to see if one was better than the other. Um, and again, this was this was a study which was part of a, a larger kind of research project. And the authors of this study released a, an earlier one using the same experiments about dog welfare so they were actually looking at the stress levels in the dogs and things using the very same experiments. But, they, but this study, they were extracting information about how effective the training is, irrespective of welfare. Just are e-collars be better than positive reinforcement or vice versa? So how they went about that was they had um, three groups of dogs, about 20 dogs in each group. Uh, they'd all been referred for behavioral problems. I think mostly chasing animals, um, chasing livestock or poor recall or things like that. So the, they, they had kind of minor behavioral issues, the, the, the dogs. And they put into three groups, 20 dogs in each group. One were um, trained using an e-collar e by e-collar professionals. So they were, they were trainers that specialize in e-collars and they were uh, nominated by the e-collar kind of trade body or something. So real, real experts in their field, the e-collar trainers. The second group of dogs were actually trained by those, by those same trainers, but without using an e-collar. So using whatever other methods they saw as appropriate. And across all three groups, the trainers could use what, whatever methods they wanted to. But And the third group was the positive reinforcement group. So they were trainers that specialize in positive reinforcement. I think they were put forward by the, it's a British paper, so like the British body of, I don't know, positive reinforcement dog training. I don't know what the, I don't know what the body's called. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was the e-collar group, the positive reinforcement group, and then also the group being trained by the e-collar guys without e-collars. Uh, and I, I, it wasn't really clear to me in the paper what the objective of the training was. Like what had they told the trainers to, to train? I don't, I don't really know, which was odd. I don't really know what they, that wasn't mentioned. <laughs> but um, I, I guess it was to address the issues that they had to improve their general obedience and to, to improve their recall, uh, because that's what they were looking at specifically was how well were the dogs trained recall and, and sit. Um, but the but you know between the groups they spent a different amount of time doing recall training and yeah it was kind of it was kind of a bit fuzzy that that part. But anyway, so they train train the dogs for two 15 minute sessions over the course of five days, and they were videoed. And for this paper, they monitored the videos and they looked at how um, when dogs were given the cues for sit and come, they were looked at what if if the dog responded to that cue if they came or if they sat, uh, if they needed to be asked twice or even three times, or if they just ignored it, and also how long it took them to re respond. And the people who were watching the videos were blind to the 
treatment because all of the dogs no matter which group all wore kind of collars which looked like e-collars well actually collars for the e-collar group obviously but deactivated ones for the other groups so that the um, people looking at the videos didn't know which one it which which group it was uh yeah so they just trained these dogs and had to look at how well they responded to the cues basically and um the result was that there wasn't a great deal of difference between the three groups so um Oh, I noted it down here somewhere that, that, that there it is. The, <laughs> for, the, for the positive reinforcement group, they would come uh, to, the, to the trainer on the first time they were asked to come, like 83% of the time, so really high. And the e-collar group and the e-collar trainer, no e-collar group, <laughs> um, were both about 70%. So the positive reinforcement did outperform the e-collars which is really interesting uh, so there isn't a great deal of difference between the uh, three groups but positive reinforcement did um, outperform slightly and the same for the different measure wait how long it took dogs to respond so dogs respond pr responded pretty quickly between one and two seconds but the positive reinforcement ones on average responded a few fractions of a second earlier but enough of a difference for that to be uh, statistically significant which is kind of the analysis they do which shows it's not just um, down to chance so yeah the the, the papers show that the positive reinforcement actually outperformed the e-collars by by a little bit with the absolute best well not absolute best but trying to ensure that it was the best possible version of that training that they could get so the the e-collar guys were being trained really well with e-collars and the positive reinforcement dogs being trained really well with positive reinforcement. I mean, that was, that was kind of a bit of a prob problem with it. The dogs almost did too well. I mean, they did well right from the start. So I think maybe the, the training situation wasn't challenging enough. So it didn't kind of te tease out differences that you, that you might observe, I don't know. But, it's, but it definitely, on its own, that study supports positive reinforcement as a method for for training and gives absolutely no reason whatsoever to use to use e-collars well and i find it I, it's interesting too because like th this specific study wasn't like well-being of animals it was just does it work yeah. does it not work yeah like i love that that like because obviously you know i advocate for the dog's welfare right and, and i definitely don't advocate for e-collars but i think that this is this study is really nice, like concretely <laughs> that yeah, not that it's just does it work and how quickly does it work? But yeah, so was there any consideration for breed of dog? No, I think they just had a, a bunch of different breeds and they spread them out amongst the groups. So no, there there, there wasn't. I don't think. Yeah, so I think that that would be something that would be interesting to see, like going forward. Like, I mean, just kind of going back to the breed groups we were talking about before: herding breeds, ancient breeds, solitary hunting breeds. Is there any change in efficacy when we take into account the breed of dog and maybe t tendencies to chase prey, or mm. you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's a lot. Well, even the differences between the breeds for welfare. Like, if it, it's a more sensitive breed, there's more reason less reason to use an e-collar and more reason not to if they if they're going to be more susceptible to the effects of stress from using that method oh my gosh yes yeah, see and this is what we oh my gosh i'm so okay well when this research gets published and happens we'll talk about <laughs> it again um 
But okay, so the, the study that happened kind of like before this one was about um, welfare to the animal? Yeah, it was. So they, I, I, I skimmed over this one, so I'm not as, not as familiar with it, but they, um, they just look for signs of stress in the dog and cortisol levels, actually. And they, they found that the e-collar group were more stressed than the other groups, but not not disturbingly so. Like the, the cortisol levels, the stress hormone, hormone levels were actually not different between the three groups. But the e-collar group, there was more yawning and more um, you know, shaking and more of those low level kind of lip licking, low level signs of stress. So they perhaps were not enjoying themselves as much as the positive reinforcement dogs. Right, but the percentages weren't like super stark as far as like- No, and, it, and I, you wouldn't really, well, I, I wouldn't really expect them to be if they're, pro, if they're pro professional trainers. I mean, my, my concern with e-collars is when it's in the hands of people who, who aren't experts at using them who don't know what they're doing and don't don't know to use like really low levels on them. I mean, it's just such a dangerous tool in the hands of people who don't know what they're doing, which is most people, right? right? So yeah, I, I wouldn't really expect them to be really high stress in professionals in, in this situation as well, where the training situation wasn't particularly challenging. So I'm kind of assuming in this study, the dogs wouldn't have really been experiencing all that much pain it would be more discomfort but I, d I don't know I don't know that's very much a speculation um yeah it's a funny one e-collars e I'm a, I I'm supportive of banning them for sure and I, which is pretty much where we are here in England they're not it's not um not gone through yet but the government have said they're going to ban them yeah uh, but yeah they I, I can kind of, when when someone when you get a trainer who's really good at using them and they have these arguments for it, I can kind of say yeah okay in that situation with you and that dog then okay I don't really have a problem with that very particular situation but them being available for everyone is is just silly it's just crazy and the, and this study actually shows positive reinforcement training can be right and there's not that fallout anyone can take cookies right and there's not like that consequence yeah. to the dog right like and I think you know obviously as a positive reinforcement trainer right like I want to see the research prove that it's better but even if it didn't I think it's still in the dog's best interest right like I think it's still the most humane way to train a dog so yeah you know and I'm glad we have this research. I'm glad we can see it and compare it, right? And I do think that it's important we honor that, like, with professionals using e-collars and that comparison, you know, the animal welfare maybe isn't as drastically decreased as we think maybe it is, right? Like, obviously, that's... But a then the difference is the e-collar the e group dogs, okay, maybe mildly stressed. So they're in a training session not having a particularly nice time. The positive reinforcement dogs having a great time, having treats, hanging out with the... the trainer like that's like a nice experience <laughs> compared to a mildly stressful experience even if it is mildly stressful why why would you choose the slightly horrible experience over the really nice happy experience <laughs> it's well, just silly well and everyone listening I know you all have already made your decision right <laughs> 
to us, but right. Like, I think it's important. So is there more, do you know of any more research that's being conducted right now, as far as that's concerned? Like, the Oh, I don't, I, I don't, to be honest. I mean, there's, there's research groups that kind of specialize in this stuff. There was, this, this study was part of a bigger, um, uh, piece of research, which was government funded in this country, in England, I think to, back when they were deciding whether they should ban them or not to, to see if, well, if they're much better, if they're much more effective than other methods, maybe we shouldn't ban them, but they did this research. It showed that they're not more effective. So they, yeah, so they're going, going ahead with the ban, but I think there was challenges to that ban, like some legal challenges from e Manufacturer. Yeah. <laughs> Manufacturer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it was it was there was a few, I think maybe a few studies that came out. There might be there might be more studies, there might be more papers coming out of that piece of research. I don't I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. Um, but another thing I wanted to say about that study was um, the fact that there was no difference between the e-collars and the positive reinforcement shows that when you're when you're just doing kind of basic training with your new pet dog there's no reason to choose e-collars it's not a shortcut to training your dog it doesn't get quicker results so i think some people see it as a kind of the easy option almost like the cheat the shortcut way of training but this study shows that that's not the case you should totally go for positive reinforcement it's a little bit better right right <clears throat> get faster results and ultimately it's better for the animal mm. mm -hmm. yeah. exactly so no brainer <laughs> so informative oh my god this has been so much fun okay so amy if people want to connect with you is it at dog science says everywhere it is it is at dog science says on instagram which is where i'm most active um facebook which has the same posts if you're just a facebook person but the comment section isn't as um active and also on Twitter for just um, little, even more bite-sized bits of information about research. Amazing. Yeah. So everyone follow Amy so that you can be up to date on the latest research. Oh, just really quickly. Okay. The research on do black dogs get hotter than <laughs> other dogs? So, I mean, I was surprised that there wasn't really a major difference in. Yeah. I think everyone was surprised. <laughs> Yeah, so they tested a bunch of black labs and a bunch of yellow labs and took them for a walk in the sunshine and it took their temperatures like internally and externally and everywhere. And the, the, yeah, the black dogs didn't get that much hotter. They did actually get a little bit hotter, but it wasn't a um, statistical difference. So when they did statistics, that could have just been down to chance. But I, yeah, I don't, I'm not completely happy with that conclusion. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe... My my dog's black, and when he lies in the sunshine for ages, I mean, he get he does he does get hot. I mean, I don't have a what yellow version of him to kind of compare him to, but, but they took them for a walk, and maybe maybe they don't get as hot when they're walking. And I think they might have taken the temperature more kind of from their abdomen sort of area, so not on their back where the sun was beaming down. I don't know, I don't know, but it was it was interesting that their internal temperature wasn't too affected, which is. Um, reassuring if you've got a black dog and you don't want them to overheat but still take care of your black dogs or any dogs in the heat obviously <laughs> all right amy thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it oh no problem it's been fun thank you for having me. thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the show 
If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.